As I alluded to, I not alluded, as I said to the children, tonight we're going to look at some kings, some bad kings. Uh, we are beginning this evening a series on the life of David. I've never, I haven't taught this here. Actually, I may not have just taught a whole series on David before. Uh, so I'm excited about this series, and it'll be, again, sort of stop and start two weeks on, two weeks off as we go through this. I suspect we will go through probably through the summer and possibly fall, uh, speaking about David over the next few months. And we're not going to look at everything that's said about David, all of the stories. Uh, there's more written about David than anyone else in the Bible other than Jesus. There's just a lot written about David. So we're not going to cover all of the text about David. Some of it's repeat, but we're, we're not going to look at every specific thing. We're going to hit the highlights. We're going to hit the main notes of David's life and uh, sort of the things that happened to him and some of the stuff that he did. And we will look after, uh, at the very end, we'll sort of look at his legacy, some stuff that happens immediately after his death and things that, that happened in Israel. Uh, and as we study this, we're going to do this with two questions in mind. Number one, why is David so important in the history of redemption? And we've talked about this on Wednesdays, uh, the redemptive context of Bible study. Uh, all of the Bible story is about one thing, right? It's about God's redemption of mankind. What makes David possibly the second most important, maybe third behind Abraham, uh, character in the redemptive story of God? Why is he so important? And then, of course, the second question what practical lessons can we learn from his life? As we look about David's life, what, what do we learn from him? Uh, what is uh, things that he was doing that were good, that we can emulate, attitudes that he had, and failures? We're going to look a lot at his failures and things that he did poorly. The first step to understanding this is Israel in David's time. The, the atmosphere of Israel into which he was born and then became king, specifically their history of leadership, their recent history of leadership in Israel. And Israel's recent history up until David, not great. The leadership in Israel had not been doing well. Uh, beginning back with Eli, 2 Samuel, or not 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, 17, uh, 12 and 17. Now, Eli, of course, was the sort of the, the uh, adoptive Father, he sort of raised Samuel, right? Uh, he was a priest and a prophet, and, and his sons, not great. He's leading Israel. Eli was leading Israel, but those who would have sort of carried on his legacy, those who would have been uh, serving as priests over Israel, would have been supposedly helping them learn about God and helping them perform the sacred things and helping them do the sacrifices and helping them be holy. They were worthless men. Not many times does the Bible describe something as worthless, but these guys apparently were worthless. They did not know the Lord, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. They treated the offering of the Lord with contempt in the way that they were thinking about the offering and what the priests got out of each offering versus what was offered to the Lord, what each person brought. And they were not doing it well. They were doing it selfishly and, and wanting to get more than their sort of fair share out of the offering. For Samuel 8, so his sons die, Eli dies, Samuel sort of takes over as sort of the last judge of Israel. He is uh, sort of the last sort of main person of this era, the judge's era. First Samuel 8, 1 through 3, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second Ab Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So we have Eli serving over God's people. His sons are worthless. 
Samuel, sort of his adoptive son, takes Eli's place. His sons are worthless. And so we're developing an atmosphere in Israel where there's one good guy and then the leaders in Israel are horrible people. And then there's another good guy and his sons are also horrible people. And the cycle that really began in Judges, right, way back in Judges, you had a judge rise up, lead the people, did well for a while, then the judge died, and what happened? Each did what was right in his own eyes, and they all went back to doing their own thing. And one of the themes that we'll see in the life of David, really this whole section of Israelite history, is the importance and difficulty of raising faithful children. Eli failed at it. Samuel failed at it. Saul, ironically, did kind of well at it. And then David failed at raising faithful children. By this time, of course, it had been several generations since Israel had had stable, righteous leadership. And so what do they do? 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. You're going to die soon, Samuel. You've got to fix this now. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from, this, uh, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now obey their voice, only warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now, we see, of course, reasonable argumentation from the Israelites, right? <coughs> His sons were not doing well. They were not doing what they should. Eli's sons had failed. Samuel's about to die. And the judges' era had been okay, but mostly they had continually turned away from God then God would raise up another judge. And so you can sort of understand where they're coming from here. And yet, wasn't it the point that they were not like the rest of the nations? Wasn't that the point? They're not going to just be like everybody else. They're not just going to be another earthly kingdom. They are ruled by Yahweh, the creator, with his appointed judge who will lead them and guide them. And they have rejected that model, the model that God gave them. And so Samuel warns them about the things that are going to do. There's going to be increased taxes and your sons are going to have to go to war and things will generally not be great under the kings. But verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the years of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And I kind of, you know, I often wonder about this. Does God ever sound resigned? <sighs> obey their voice. Make them a king. And you can kind of hear the exasperation, right? These yahoos. These dum-dums. Fine, go ahead and do it. We'll see how it goes. Not, not he knows, of course, how it'll go, but they'll see how it goes. Do this for them. Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to a city. And then, of course, he goes and is going to uh, anoint who we know, Saul. Now, again, why do they want a king? They want a king because they want to be like the other nations. They want the king to to fight their battles for them, although I would suggest the judges had already been doing that. What do you think Samson was doing all that time, fighting all their battles? Deborah and Barak fighting all the battles of Israel. Like, 
A king's not going to be appreciably different in that respect. Uh, that he will rule over us and judge us. Well, what did they think Samuel had been doing that whole time for the last few decades? Ruling and judging over them. The thing that really is different about the king from the judge is to be like all the other nations. And I think we do this as people. When things are not going well, we look for any possible thing we can change. What can I change? In this case, Eli and Samuel both had worthless sons who had led Israel astray, who were not doing what was appropriate. And so Israel, I think, is thinking, this keeps failing. What can we do different? What can we do different? Anything we can do different? Oh, let's have a king. But the problem is not the model of leadership. The problem is, as it always is, people. And God warns them, you're going to have a king. It's not going to be any different. Kings are just people like other people, like Eli's sons and Samuel's sons. They're just people. And so when they think, okay, what is a king going to do that a judge is not? I'm not sure they really have that fully formed in their mind, how it's going to be different. I think they just want it to be different, to be different. And so how did the first king turn out? We think about Saul, the first king. First Samuel 10, 20 through 22. Uh, I would encourage you, we're not going to read it. I would encourage you to read the story of Saul's call. It's kind of an interesting story as he's led through this journey through several towns looking for Saul. It's kind of uh, looking for donkeys. Kind of a funny story. At the end of all that, Saul's the guy. He's, quote-unquote, tall, dark, and handsome. He's, he's like the picture of a king. Super tall and, and uh, apparently quite the specimen. And yet we see that he's probably not the right man for the job. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of uh, the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding with the suitcases. He's hiding with the baggage. Because he doesn't want to be king, maybe. I mean, obviously, that's the only conclusion we can draw from this. He's already talked to Saul, or not Saul. He's, I knew I was going to do this. Saul and Samuel, it's too close. Saul has already talked to Samuel. Samuel has already inquired of the Lord about this. There's no doubt about who this is going to be. Saul does not want this burden, I guess, responsibility. While he's sort of tall, dark, and handsome, the picture of a specimen of an Israelite who should be king, he doesn't really want the job. Now, he does do an okay job for the first several years. He does okay. God is with him as he promises he would be. Uh, Saul has several uh, victories over defeating the people, uh, the, the enemies of Israel. And this is, of course, what the people wanted, right? Appoint us a king who will fight our battles for us. Although, let's be clear about this, it's not the king fighting the battle, right? It's the people. It's always the people, the army fighting the battle. The king's just sort of the figurehead. He gathers and it consolidates power. There's doubters and they're like, ah, oh, we don't want Saul as our king. And he has several victories and they change their mind. Oh, Saul's so great. We love Saul. Uh, and, and there's sort of this nice thing going on for a while. But Saul goes the way of all of Israel's recent leadership and forsakes the commands of the Lord, the counsel of the Lord. Several years in, He's preparing for a battle with the Philistines in 1 Samuel 13. There's going to be this battle that's to come. And we read in 1 Samuel 13, 8 through 11, as they're preparing Saul and his armies, they're, they're camping out, getting ready to go to war. 
He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Samuel is presumably going to come and meet him and offer a sacrifice. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and, and Samuel's not coming, and uh, we need to have this offering so we can start the battle. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. The army's getting restless. They're running away, basically. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering to me, the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering, and as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold... Samuel came and Samuel went out to meet and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Now, why did they need an offering at all? So they're about to have a battle. As was custom, they're going to make an offering to the Lord. Give us victory. They're going to ask the Lord for help, basically, is what they're going to do, right? They're going to offer, make this offering to the Lord for victory in battle, and it has been this way several times throughout Israel's history, right? They offer to the Lord, he sat and offer the sacrifice, and he leads them into victory in sometimes supernatural ways. And they're waiting, and they're waiting. we got to make this offering. And I think some of the people, uh, sometimes, I, some, uh, how do I say this? When I've taught this text in the past, one of the questions is, well, why didn't they just go fight? I don't think the soldiers wanted to go fight until they had the blessing of the Lord. Right? I don't want to go fight and possibly get killed because you were too, didn't want to wait. And maybe Saul's thinking that too. I don't want to go fight and lose this battle because I didn't wait for the offering of the Lord. And so they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. And then finally, of course, Saul offers it. And what's the problem with Saul's offering? Well, we just read it. You go back a couple pages. He is from the tribe of Benjamin. He's not allowed to make an offering. He's not allowed to do that. That's not something that he's capable or, or permitted to do. So he's waiting and waiting and waiting. Ah, oh, fine, I'll do it myself. The presumption of Saul doing what he knows he shouldn't do, and he knows he shouldn't do it, and that's why he waited seven days. The reason he didn't do it on day three is because he knew he shouldn't do it. The reason he didn't do it on day five is because he knew he shouldn't do it. But at a certain point, his own desire, perhaps to keep his army together, perhaps to get on with things, overwhelmed his sense of rightness, and he did it himself. Verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord. And here's the first of the phrases that we're going to really repeat over and over in this series on David. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Unlike Eli's sons. Unlike, to a certain extent, Eli himself. Unlike Samuel's sons. Unlike Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded to you. I said all that already. Now, this was not the only time that Saul did this. There's a command from God... Saul does his own thing. In this case, the command from God was, only priests can offer sacrifices from the tribe of Levi. That's the command. Saul's like, forget that. I'm going to do it myself. That's forsaking the command of the Lord. You have not kept what the Lord commanded. Another time he did that, 1 Samuel 15. He's commanded, go to war against the Amalekites and destroy everything. Destroy all the people, destroy all the stuff. Wipe them out utterly. 
But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and not, would not utterly destroy them. All that was desp- despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me, has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. I want to focus on that last verse in just a minute. But what do we see here? Again, God commands Saul a specific thing. Destroy everything. Now, why is that? Ultimately, we don't know. Possibly because of God's judgment against the Amalekites, right? The Amalekites, uh, a sinful nation, probably full of wickedness. And God is using the Israelites to, to punish them and destroy them. Saul has two options, as we always do. We have two options. I'm either going to obey what God has said, or I'm going to do my own thing. That's it. That's the whole thing. That is the entirety of human existence. I'm either going to do what God said, or I'm going to do my own thing. That's it. Saul here, he sort of does half of what God wants, but at the end of the day, he's doing his own thing. He does what he wants to do. The sin was, God said destroy everything, and he didn't. Now, why was Samuel so angry? He cried to the Lord all night. Keep in mind Samuel's history at this point. Raised by Eli, whose sons turned out to be worthless and corrupted the offering of the Lord. Raised by Eli, who himself did not turn out to be great himself. Samuel did well for a long time, but his own sons did not follow in his footsteps, did not do what was right. And now here's another leader of Israel who's forsaking the commands of the Lord. I think Samuel's at his wit's end. Is this ever going to be better? Is this ever possibly... What are we doing, God? Is this ever going to be okay? Is there ever going to be anyone that just wants to do what is right? Cries to the Lord all night in his anger at this situation. So when this is confronted, 1 Samuel 15, 17, Samuel goes and confronts Saul about his sin. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And when he say, are you little in your own eyes? Remember, what did he do when he was anointed king? He ran and went and hid in the baggage. He didn't have a high view of himself. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission to which the Lord has sent me. I brought Agag, the king of uh, of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people... Oh, well, poor little me, the king. It was the people who did it. It was not my fault. The people took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things, devoted destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Saul, are you king or not? Are you in charge or not? The answer is, of course he is. But he's blaming them because he doesn't want to take responsibility for his actions. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22 Saul's or Samuel's response has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord behold to obey is better than sacrifice Saul yes maybe you wanted to offer these sacrifices God did not tell you to do that God told you to destroy them utterly 
To obey is better than sacrifice. To listen is better than fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Presumption. This is Saul's major sin, is presumption. Is as the iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. These are the themes that we will look in the life of David. We'll trace them through the life of David. A man after God's own heart who will obey, listen, he will not rebel, he will not presume. Does that mean he's perfect? No, we know that doesn't mean he's perfect. But when he is confronted with his sin, unlike Saul who passes the buck, David will take responsibility. He will turn again to the Lord. It is, he is described in this way in Acts 13. A big history lesson of the Israelites after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. They asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. And here's the more clarifying part. Who will do all my will? He will do what I have said. It is into the climate of leadership in Israel where they expected spiritual failure of their leaders who time and again did not do the Lord's will they did their own they did what they wanted they did not do what God wanted they did their own desire that is the situation when the Lord raises up David and as we go through the rest of the study over the next few months what made David a man after God's own heart? And ultimately, can we be described that way? Would God look at you and say, there is a person after my own heart who will do my will? And I hope the answer will be yes. We know ultimately that David, though he was not perfect... David was in the line, the, the, not the beginning, but a chain, a link in the chain, leading to the one who would be perfect. Which is why in Acts 13, the next verse, right? I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will of this man's offspring. God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. David is a man after God's own heart because he does, to the best of his ability, what God wants of him. But of course, Jesus was better. A man after God's own heart himself because he literally did all God's will. Without failure, without imperfection, without blemish. And as we study the life of David, we're going to see a lot of how Jesus mirrors David. That Jesus is the better version of King David. Jesus, King and Savior over our lives. As we conclude, we offer the invitation as we do. If you're here tonight and you are not doing all of God's will, that does not mean things are hopeless. There's forgiveness to be had, amen? Even as we're doing things that we know are not right, we can still turn and repent and be cleansed and forgiven. That is what made David different than Saul. He turned and he repented and he confessed and he was forgiven. That didn't negate the consequence, as we'll look at in a later lesson. But he understood 
Part of what it means to be a man after God's own heart is to admit failure. Maybe that's you today. You need to confess something. I don't know. Maybe there's some difficulty in your life that you need help with. Maybe ultimately you need to submit to God's will. That's the first step, right? Being a person after God's own heart is admitting my will is inferior to God's and I need to submit to that will. If you're ready to do that, come while we stand and sing.